Hello, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript, a podcast that explores new and noteworthy scholarship on scripture and brings you the people behind the books. I'm Matt Lynch, co-host with Matthew Bates and Drew Johnson. I'm located here in the UK at Westminster Theological Center, which is not, by the way, located in Westminster. Used to be. Now we have locations all around the UK. This is the first episode co-host or hosted by Drew Johnson. And if you don't know Drew or want to find out more about him, you can go back about four or five episodes to the one where I interview him on his book, Knowledge by Ritual. Great person to get to know, and his work is really important and interesting. So I highly recommend that. And before we begin, I want to say thanks to our donors who have supported us to help keep this operation afloat and moving forward. If you want to give, there's still opportunities, as if we're ever going to shut that opportunity down. But uh, if you want to become our first monthly donor, that opportunity still is in front of you. Or if you'd like to become a a Golden Eagle Elite status member, where you get a, a speaking spot at our AGM, that also is still available. I just made that up, but why not? And uh, this is this is Share Your Favorite Episode Month, where you pick your favorite OnScript episode, share it with a friend, and if you, if you tweet it, Facebook it, and rent a bus stop advertising spot for a month, then maybe we'll give you a free book or something. But you have to take a photo of the bus stop sign and send it to us at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions that you want to submit for a future Q&A episode where Drew, Matt and I talk together about your questions you can also submit them via Twitter or to our Gmail account onscriptpodcast at gmail.com okay that's enough for now guys from Guatemala oh okay yeah. well what what values in your society do you think may have come from the Old Testament well I think the um, values I'll have to say justice none I think that the way the world is now is not the same it should be back in the old ways because people are selfish and greedy and they don't really care about nothing now I think back then they actually had morals and principles somewhat it may not have been correct but it, it made sense I, I don't have no idea what you're talking about. Came from the Old Testament and the Bible. Uh, a lot of them, actually. A lot of them. I mean, we try to be truthful and you know, upright people. You know, as as a as a culture, as American culture, like you know, Christianity is a big part of American culture and Western you know society. Oh, I'm not really religious. I'm more of cosmic. I believe in um, you know, like fate and. Everything happens for a reason. Not that I don't believe in God, I do, you know, but I was brought up non-religious. That I don't believe in God, that there is no God, that it's like believing in the Easter Bunny. Um, I'm going to let my dad answer this. Uh, uh, subservience to their higher power and um, strong belief and... Um, cultural strong cultural values that's awesome thank you um and do you mind if i ask like keep going okay so i'm gonna throw a couple of phrases out and you just finish the phrase um how you think the old testament might finish it okay so love your neighbor as yourself okay love the immigrant as don't know don't know all right no worries um how about um if someone breaks into your home uh an eye for an eye What role has the Hebrew Bible had in shaping our modern view of what is ethical? Many Christians casually believe that the radical ethics of the New Testament have provided the moral foundation of the Western world. However, Christians are often unaware of the deep roots of Western morality in the Hebrew Bible. For instance, my students are often shocked to find out that Jesus did not invent the ideal of loving our neighbors as ourselves or even loving the stranger as ourselves. Rather, he is quoting Leviticus from the Torah. 
Most people are surprised to find out that what we often take to be at the center of our modern morality, caring for the poor and the orphans, inclusion of the immigrant, weekend rest, labor laws, offering forgiveness and more, actually comes directly out of the scrolls of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Beyond that, Jeremiah Unterman has offered work that not only presents us with the Hebraic roots of our morality, but demonstrates that this ethical framework is found only in the Hebrew Bible and not in the literature of ancient Israel's neighbors, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and others. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Drew Johnson at the King's College in New York City. I'm talking today with Dr. Jeremiah Unterman, who is coming to us from Jerusalem, Israel. Jeremiah Unterman was the director of the Association of Modern Orthodox Day Schools in North America before becoming a resident scholar at the Herzl Institute, also in Jerusalem. He is the author of the TNT Clark monograph on Jeremiah, titled From Repentance to Redemption, Jeremiah's Thought in Transition, as well as numerous scholarly articles. He has taught at some colleges and universities you might have heard of, Dartmouth, Northwestern, UC Irvine. He has a bachelor's in Hebraic studies from Rutgers University, a master's in Bible from Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he studied with Moshe Greenberg, and a PhD in Judaica program of the Near Eastern Studies Department at UC Berkeley, where he studied with the renowned scholar Jacob Milgram. Today, we're talking about Dr. Unterman's new book, Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics, published with Jewish Publication Society and the University of Nebraska Press. Now a note of full disclosure. I have both already read this book in its early drafts, and I've used it in teaching freshmen here in a Christian context at the King's College. I've personally been convinced of its merits by the content, but also how I've seen it help young college students reassess the Bible's position in the world of ancient literature. This book not only offers fresh insights into the ethical matrix of the Hebrew Bible, but also acts as a primer for folks who might not be intimately familiar with the literature of the Bible or even the ancient Near East. I would dare say that many Christians might even be surprised by the ethical teaching of the Torah and the prophets from which the New Testament texts derive most all of their ethics. Dr. Unterman, Jerry, thank you for being here with me today on OnScript. Thank you very much, Drew. I'm honored. And uh, one biographical note that I failed to mention was also that you were a uh, an avid basketball player and could have turned uh, professional, but you had to make a decision to go into academia. Is that correct? <laughs> well, it's partially correct. I mean, at that time, uh, we're talking about uh, 1968 when I was 22, which tells you how old I am. Uh, I uh, I was kind of recruited by uh, a professional team in Israel while I was here, uh, and uh, I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to be a basketball player or a serious student. And I realized that with basketball, you could you know tear your knee out the next day. So I I, I decided to be a student instead. And you feel that you've chosen wisely. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, I want to turn first uh, to the title of this book. It's titled Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics. And I'd like to ask you uh, a question about each part of the title. First, uh, justice for all. How is the Bible concerned with justice for all? And how is that different from maybe the neighboring cultures uh, of ancient Israel? And then second, if you could speak to the term Jewish Bible and for our non-Jewish listeners, uh, what do you mean, Jerry, when you use the term Jewish Bible, and why is Jewish an important modifier for that term? Uh, okay, good questions. Uh, Justice for All, as uh, I'm sure you're aware, is taken from the uh, Pledge of Allegiance uh, because I really uh, believe that the uh, values uh, expressed uh, in the uh, Jewish Bible, the what's called by the Christians the Old Testament, um, are uh, very similar to... Uh, to what the idea is in America of what a justice society should be. Uh, in terms of, of, but it's a, it's, it's a title which I feel is correct in the sense that it's, uh, the, in the Jewish Bible, you have concern, uh, starting with the Torah, the five books of Moses, you have concern for every single person in the society. Uh, not just the wealthy, not just 
the rulers, uh, not uh, just uh, those who are even members of the society, but even for uh, strangers that would be referred to be residents alien, resident aliens, as well as for uh, even slaves. Uh, so that's that, that's basically why I use that uh, that title. Uh, in terms of uh, the reference to Jewish Bible, um, it, this is a, a conscious choice to use this uh, this term because I'm wishing to counteract an academic approach that claims that the Babylonian exile uh, from 586 to 539 BCE was a watershed in biblical history, that the Israel religion of the first temple period, approximately 1000 to 586 BCE for the first temple, uh, ended with the uh, Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the Davidic monarchy, and, and meaning the destruction of the Davidic monarchy. And that what we know is ancient Israel really began only with the beginning of the Second Temple period. I mean, sorry, we know as ancient Judaism began only with, with the beginning of the Second Temple period under Persia in 539 BCE. The, the assumption being of this idea is that during the exile, groups of Jews redefined monotheism, covenant, and law and created a new theology. The assumption further states that the Torah is the product of this new theology. In other words, according to this idea, the Torah was not written down until the Second Temple period, and that pertains also to most of the prophetic works. Now, what I'm saying in this book is that I'm basing it on a different supposition, that the Hebrew Bible is the product of ancient Jewish civilization from the second millennium BC until the latter part of the first millennium. The contention here in the book is that Judaism, that is monotheism, the Sinaitic covenant, the law, the tie of the people to the land, including the establishment of all the rituals connected with the land, such as holidays, ties, providing for the poor, etc. The temple, with its priesthood, sacrifices, and their intrinsically Jewish significance, as well as the prophetic messages of repentance and redemption, all originated significantly before the end of the first temple period. And therefore, what you have in the second temple period is simply that these Jewish memories and texts and ideas and practices are carried on throughout the exile and the restoration to the land to the beginning of the Second Temple period. So in reality, what you're talking about here is one religion uh, in which historical circumstances change. But the idea of mythical monotheism that the Judaism uh, that was developed in the First Temple period has not uh, and and that's the basic reason. Yeah, I, I very much appreciated in the book uh, how I hadn't really taken as seriously as I should have how much monotheism itself uh, plays a role in the ethical structure of the Torah. Uh, it now seems obvious after reading the book, uh, <laughs> but it's it's a point that we can easily skip over. If I could ask you uh, just very briefly. Um, a, what motivated you to write this book? There's obviously, it's coming from someplace uh, deep, we can tell even by hearing that answer to the question. Um, but also, you know, it's it struck me that it's it's basically a book of ancient comparative literature. You're looking at the, uh, the literature of these different uh, civilizations, um, but it's also written for laypersons. I'd say, you know, the uh, a decently educated layperson uh, who likes to read books about anything uh, can easily sink their teeth into this book. Yes, so, uh, Drew, you're actually pointing out uh, that the two uh, major reasons that I wrote the book uh, the way I did. Um, on the one hand, uh, I was frustrated from the time I was a graduate student um, with the fact that there were some very interesting studies being done on, uh, on the ethics of the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and, uh, and these studies were not getting out to the public. Uh, and I actually confronted Jacob Milgram at one point uh, on this uh, when I was a graduate student, and uh, uh, I said, "How come you you know you're not writing for the uh, the, the lay public?" And uh, he said to me, "You do it." So <laughs> it was uh, at that time I didn't feel capable. <laughs> and what like, year was that? <laughs> that must have been sometime around 1971 <laughs> or so. <laughs> Only took forty so, years or so. Yeah, yeah forty-five <laughs> to get it published. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and really, what happened was that 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 kind of stuck with me. And uh, 
and I was also uh, uh, upset by the I, by by what I saw as a as a significant tendency in academic scholarship to see the the the, the Jewish Bible as part and parcel of the ancient Near East, and really uh, not presenting any dramatic, significant development beyond what was going on in ancient Near Eastern cultures. Uh, the idea that, uh, and there were actually uh, scholars who, uh, James Breasted uh, even talks about the superior uh, superiority of, uh, of uh, Egyptian ethics uh, to, uh, uh, to, to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and, and other such uh, comments, uh, which, uh, which which one finds throughout the literature. Um, so um, my books attempt to say, not so fast. If you really examine carefully what's going on in ancient Near Eastern uh, documents, uh, which we have today, I mean, there, we have almost a million inscriptions, uh, perhaps from the ancient Near East, much of which hasn't been read, but what, much of which has already been translated and is available. Um, you you see that uh, uh, you compare you compare what's going on in religion and ethics in the ancient Near East to what's going on in the Jewish Bible, and it's a uh, what you have in the Jewish Bible is indeed a revolution. Hmm. Uh, the, the, in terms of running for the interested layperson, so I I really wanted to uh, convey this um, material to. Uh, to Jews, Christians, secular people will be interested, and, and that's why I wrote it the way I did. Yeah, I think you were you were successful on that front. I feel like I could basically hand this book to, to anybody, uh, and they could very easily access what you were doing here. Thank you. Uh, let's go ahead and just jump into some of that content then so you can give an example. Uh, in an earlier chapter titled Providing for the Disadvantaged, uh, you say, and I'll quote you here, Quote, it would be hard to find a more problematic issue in human cultures than the perception of the position uh, accorded to the stranger, the classic outsider. The result has been the sad historical fact that the stranger has been adjudged negatively as an imagined fearful threat, and therefore the group has developed means to exclude or restrict the stranger. So maybe you could just talk about how outsiders or strangers are, are generally treated in the ancient Near Eastern literature, and then how the Hebrew Bible differs. Yes, uh, well, from a, from a general perspective, uh, the um, uh, strangers, and I refer here primarily to resident aliens. Uh, I'm not talking about, uh, or even, although you can even add to that, uh, merchants, uh, or come in temporarily into a, another society to do business uh, and, and then leave, um, often these people don't have any legal rights within the society uh, in which they find themselves. Uh, and, uh, and they are viewed right, often from a, uh, a xenophobic per perspective. Uh, and you have very, very little material in the ancient areas which actually uh, refers to uh, how strangers are, are treated. You have references to strangers as slaves. Uh, you, have refer you have one reference in uh, a uh, lower collection from Eshnuna going back to the uh, 18th century BCE in which uh, there, there's, a there's one, one line which says that uh, um, the uh, stranger might be the resident alien um, should sell his beer through the uh, person who is uh, authorized to sell beer. Uh, tapster. It's actually a female form uh, that's used there. So, uh, and, and that that might actually indicate something positive. But outside of that one comment, you cannot find anything. That in was a positive comment. Yes. I one comment, which was, you cannot find anything in ancient Near Eastern law, per se, which talks about the stranger. There's a Hittite text which talks about instructions to, uh, for military uh, governors how to deal with uh, foreigners in conquered lands. But that's a whole different ballgame than talking about someone who's living within your own society. Uh, and there's one Egyptian uh, wisdom text which is a very, it's a positive text, uh, Instructions of Merikari, 
I believe, which, uh, or may, or no, it's, uh, later on. It's, um, um, an up which, uh, talks about, uh, uh, the, um, uh, don't withhold your oil jar from the stranger. Uh, but that's a, a wisdom text, which, and it should be remembered that these ancient Near Eastern texts were never promulgated to the public, that they always were meant for a very, uh, select group, an elite group of people, uh, at the most, uh, as opposed to, the Hebrew Bible in which the texts were meant, uh, to, and were actually, we know that text that we have evidence from the Torah and other, and from the book of Kings uh, about how the text was actually read to the entire people. It's a whole different right. ballgame. And Ezra and Nehemiah too, right? They're read and yeah, they had to course. explain it to the people to make sure that they understood, which caused right. them to weep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there you have, right. And that's an example of how you have a story in, in Kings about Josiah, who does this, and then you have a story later on, Ezra and Nehemiah. So on both sides of the Babylonian exile, first temple and second temple period, this is occurring. Again, this is one religion. Uh, the texts about uh, uh, dealing uh, with the, uh, the stranger in, or the resident alien in the Hebrew Bible, and all of a sudden you find there's, there's tons of laws to the benefit of the resident alien where the resident alien is included, and even the text even says, I think seven or eight times, that to you and the, and the resident alien shall be one law, uh, in, in reference to a variety of laws that uh, take place there. The, um, uh, the, you know, the resident alien is given um, all the help to uh, be able to coexist uh, with the rest of the, uh, the people there, even though he's not a member of... Um, the society in the sense of not a member of the religion, uh, of a religious member of the, uh, the group. Um, and, and this is totally different. And what's also different is that the Israelites themselves are termed strangers. Remember the famous, uh, statement by Moses that was a stranger in a strange land, right? So, uh, you have this. And so they identify themselves as having been strangers, uh, these resident aliens in even in Canaan when the patriarchs came, Abraham talks and talks to others there as as being a stranger. So there's a there's a empathy that they have with the stranger who lives in their society, which is totally unique uh, in the ancient world. And which cuts all the way through from, as you pointed out, Moses naming his own son Gershom, uh, right. strange, strange, estranged one, and uh, and all the way to Leviticus nineteen, love the stranger as yourself, for you were once strangers uh, in exactly. Land of Egypt. Exactly, and then and later on in Deuteronomy, where it says God loves the stranger, and you know you have to do what you know you have to treat like the way God uh, wants to treat. Uh, so uh, these are all. T- totally revolutionary statements, and they do away with the idea of xenophobia. It's a tremendous, uh, most of our societies, democratic societies today, haven't gotten to that level. Yeah, I find myself when I'm teaching, uh, especially young students, that you, you often have to, you feel like Chicken Little jumping up and down, telling them what's revolutionary, <laughs> what's new in the text, and they're just staring at you. And I feel like you do a really good job because uh, you show in high contrast, this is what's going on in the text around Israel, and here's what's going on, or at least on a good day, this is what should have been going on uh, in Israel. Um, I want to turn now to your chapter on ritual, which obviously piqued my attention and interest. Uh, many of us have noticed that Israel's rituals must not only be physically prepared in the correct way, uh, but they also must be ethically prepared by the Hebrews' lived experience, how they treat the poor, the stranger, how they build their houses, how they attend to their bodies. Um, how does that differ, uh, again, going through the exercise, how is that different from what you're seeing in the other ancient Near Eastern texts? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, actually, uh, I really enjoy what you have to say about the idea of uh, knowledge gained by performing ritual. Um, it, it, it's quite true. In, uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature, you do have a few references. I'm talking really about just a, a three or four references to the, um, in, and I'm talking about literature that goes over a 2,000-year period. 
um, uh, as you mentioned, Egyptian, Sumerian, Akkadian, uh, Syrian, etc., Hittite. So you have a, just a very few references to the idea that um, uh, that the, a god, a particular god, such as you have a text from uh, Nippur, um, that in Leo uh, wants to see both ethical behavior in it, or that the, there's both. I'm sorry, doesn't want to see, but there is both ethical behavior in Nippur as well as attention, attention to ritual. Uh, so you do have a couple of texts like that. Um, there's, uh, however, uh, what happens in the uh, Jewish Bible is a, a a step way beyond that. From if you look at the the Torah itself, the laws in the Torah, you don't really see. That uh, although there's many many ethical laws and there's many rituals, you don't really see the, a clear differentiation between the two in the sense of that one is more important than the other. Usually, you can tell when a law is more important by what is the reward or the punishment for uh, disobedience to uh, uh, to to that uh, to either fulfilling or disobeying the commandment. Um, so the more stringent uh, right punishment would indicate a uh, a more significant law. However, you get uh, to the prophets, and the prophets make a major contribution here. Um, what they uh, uh, what you see in in, in uh, biblical prophecy is that ethics beca- is more important than ritual. Uh, it's this is interesting because um, scholars began noticing this in the nineteenth century. Uh, and what you find is that people began interpreting this stuff based upon their own religious perspective. So, uh, for example, so Protestants who, uh, who didn't see ritual as important would say, ah, what's happening is the prophets are denying, uh, the validity of ritual. Uh, whereas, uh, Catholics and, uh, and, uh, Orthodox Jews who saw, uh, this said, ah, they said, well, ritual is uh, very important, and you have to have both ethics and ritual. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reinvestigate this whole, uh, this whole issue. And, and truly what uh, uh, the, 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 you have a wonderful uh, – uh, there was a wonderful scholar in Israel named Yechezkel Kaufman uh, who passed away oh, maybe 50 years ago or so uh, or more. Uh, and uh, he actually uh, – wrote on the primacy of ethics over ritual. The idea being that um, uh, the ritual is dependent for its validity upon ethics. So God, this is talking about in the Jewish Bible, so that um, God will only ex- accept a ritual act, whether it is a sacrifice or a prayer, from somebody who behaves ethically. And that is just simply a revolution in ancient Near Eastern thought. Yeah, I remember uh, years ago you and I having a conversation about this, and uh, actually when you were telling me you were about you were thinking about writing this book, and uh, you gave me that excellent analogy that I ended up using in my book uh, about the spouse who brings the flowers home uh, uh, to to their to their wife in this case. That was from Moshe uh, Greenberg, yes. <laughs> that's from Moshe Greenberg, and said yeah. uh, th- those flowers have been ethically prepared to be either accepted or rejected before the day they're brought home. Right. In other words, uh, right. If a uh, uh, you know if a husband that brings uh, his wife uh, flowers on her on her birthday, right. So the question is, has he been a good husband? Up until uh, this point, has he uh, been concerned with her needs? Has he listened to her when uh, she uh, uh, she speaks? Has he treated her respectfully? Uh, has he been faithful to her? Right? If it, if these things are true, then he the the flowers are gladly accepted as a symbol of a love which is um, which is uh, uh, demonstrated on a daily basis. But uh, should the husband bring? Uh, uh, flowers uh, to his wife, uh, and and he hasn't behaved ethically, and hasn't really cared that much about her, and uh, spent too many nights out with the boys drinking, etc. Uh, and then brought her flowers. She has the right to uh, throw them in his face with a statement that uh, a symbol of love is meaningless when the love itself uh, is not shown on a uh, on a regular basis, and that is. In a sense, what's going on with um, 
with God and uh, and the rituals. In other words, the rituals are there, as it were, to show one's love and respect and obedience for God and to God. And if uh, if if one doesn't show uh, love to the image of God, to the human being uh, who is you know your your neighbor, the uh, the resident alien, etc., then um, that then, then it has no worth. It just uh, dawned on me that both with uh, the God of Israel and with the wife, uh, that uh, the the sacrifice can be a pleasing aroma if it's well prepared. Yes. Um, let me turn now to your chapter uh, where you deal with the issue of repentance, and there's a there's a spate of books coming out right now uh, dealing with kind of conceptual analysis where we've uh, we've often heard certain biblical terms in a certain way, and, and uh, scholars are now saying, well, we, we might be taking those out of whack a little bit, a little bit out of context or reading modern uh, definitions in. And so your your chapter that deals with repentance, for a lot of people, it might be surprising. Uh, you title it The Requirement of Return. And maybe yes. you could explain for our listeners why you tie together return in, in both a physical way and, and otherwise um, and and kind of how the nation of Israel is in, involved in repentance and return. Yes, well, the um, uh, again with uh, I, I deal with um, with a, a lot of issues in uh, in my book concerning uh, repentance and a, lot, and a different terminology, um, uh, such as confession and uh, but but return. The Hebrew word for return, shuv. Um, is the classical term that the term that's used by the prophets uh, to describe uh, what um, what we would define as repentance, and and it's important, of course. You know, one of the things that the scholar and the reader of ancient materials always has to be aware of is that uh, you're trying to put yourself into the sandals of the person, the the kind of like the uh, the ideal reader who lived at the time that the text came into being and who is familiar with um, the society and the religion and uh, the illusions that exist in the text, uh, the, um, which we are not, we have to struggle to find, to understand these things today. So the prophets use the idea of return, which uh, in a sense is a metaphoric meaning. On the one hand, return is, is real if you've been exiled and you are, Returning to the land from which you were exiled, um, which, uh, by the way, is a uh, uh, is an extremely rare event in human history. I think really only the Jews have succeeded in doing that, and they've done it more than once. Uh, the um, uh, so I mean, as a people, not just as individuals. Uh, so you have this um, uh, this this sense of, of, of a real return. But um, which is a physical turning. However, the prophets primarily mean it in the sense of a spiritual and practical return. And by I mean spiritual and practical, it's not just a. Um, in other words, the idea is that when one has has sinned, has been disobedient to God's commandments, has done wrong things, has gone off the path, which by the way is uh, one of the um, and meanings for the word "chet," uh, which is a classic word for sin in the uh, Hebrew Bible, meaning, um, uh, for example, someone who has um, who, who who shoots at a target and misses the target is is from the same root. To miss the target is from the same root as the word sin. So, if you it means to go, have to have gone astray. So, if you've gone astray from the path you should be going on the path of God's will, God's commandments, then uh, you have to return to that path. So on the one hand, you're returning to where God wants you to go, and you're returning in a very real sense to God also. But at the other hand, you have to do practical things. You have to, it's, uh, you now have to do what was that you weren't doing. So if you were lying and cheating and stealing and uh, speaking badly about people, um, you have to stop that behavior, and now you have to uh, have it be uh, behaving with integrity, uh, and uh, you have to do what is morally correct, and uh, you have to speak nicely to people, etc. You have to care for others, 
And that, uh, that is all part of this, this return from a religious sense. Yeah, I think this is actually the part of the book where it all snapped into place for me, where I, I profoundly got many of the things you were saying. Is um, In that same chapter, I'm just going to quote uh, from you here, quote, The problem of repentance as an ethical category is compounded in the ancient Near Eastern polytheism by two major factors, the capricious character of the gods and the lack of revelation of the gods' will. Yes. Quote. Uh, and I, and I, I think that's where I finally got how bad it really is, or how different, I should say, the, the Hebrew Bible is, and maybe I would say how bad it really was, is uh, why is a capricious uh, pantheon of gods and not knowing what they want a problem for ethics for humans? Yes, and, and it's a real problem. You have, uh, um, you have texts, ancient Near Eastern texts, which... Talk, which, in which people are actually arguing with each other about um, about what the God wants because nobody knows what the God wants. Uh, so if something bad happens to you, you think that must be that some God is angry with you, but you don't know what you've done necessarily. And there, I mean, you you don't because you know that gods are not like you in. Or how you know is the way that God thinks is not so how like how you think. So you have to pray and you have to bring the sacrifices and you have to and you have to hope that somewhere along the line you're doing something that God likes. It's 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 a real problem because no. And here's one of the uh, the, the major uh, differences that occurs in the Jewish Bible that does not occur anywhere else in the world, and that is that for the first time you have a God giving. Uh, people, his laws, and and that doesn't occur anywhere else. So the Israelites, as opposed to say, yeah. uh, just for sake of comparison, yeah. uh, Hammurabi, the famous code of Hammurabi, with where the prologue says it's because he's installed and emplaced by the gods that he can then give law. Right, but it's not the gods themselves giving law. Right, and Hammurabi. I mean, there's many times in the uh, the prologue and the epilogue there. Where Hammurabi states, "These are my laws, my statutes. I'm giving them, right?" And and even so, remember that they were not promulgated to the public; they were put on a stele in the temple, <laughs> and so therefore, I mean, the temple grounds. So that if you if you wanted to, uh, if you even knew these laws existed, you had to find somebody who would uh, a priest or somebody who would go in and tell you uh, what the laws said. I mean, it was. It, it, it's interesting that these collections that we have from kings, such as uh, laws, such as the Hammurabi collection, are not mentioned in a single legal document um, of a kind of law case, uh, or which we have thousands of such documents in the ancient Near East, in in, uh, in Babylonia. We don't have a single mention of a reference in any legal document to the Code of Hammurabi. Which means that yeah, it was something that was known in the, from a, in a legal perspective. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, it might be the case that Hammurabi is more popularly celebrated today than it ever, <laughs> ever would have been uh, in its own day, right? Yeah, and, and it's true. It's true. We have our knowledge, the very fact that we know about all these documents uh, and all these is something which puts us in a really different position than the than 99% of the people in the ancient Near East who did not know of them. And because of the fact that we find in the Hebrew Bible a, a stable God, even if he gets angry, uh, he gets angry for known reasons. Um, yes, yes. And there's a, there's a way sometimes to ameliorate his anger uh, or to allow sin to be atoned for. Uh, but even, you know, I, I think we want to say, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the, the authors are clearly trying to depict a God who is wise and just. Even if we think he's harsh, uh, we can't say it's uh, that he's crazy, capricious, uh, acting on a whim. Well, it's you know it's interesting because um, Drew, obviously, what's going on is that you're trying to put the idea of God's relationship in terms that people can understand, right? The uh, there's a famous rabbinic comment that the uh, uh, the Bible speaks in the words of humans, okay? mm. meaning meaning that you're trying because because who are we to be able to understand God, right? That I mean, 
you know, God is so transcendent. I mean, it's a, you know, I, uh, I remember one time looking at the, uh, um, uh, through a, through a, uh, a telescope, uh, at, uh, the, uh, the, the galaxy of Andromeda, right? Which is, I think, the closest galaxy to us. And, uh, someone who was a scientist uh, there mentioned to me that, um, it's two and a half million light years away. Okay. So we're talking really transcendent. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so how do you relate to such a God? So, so one of the ways you do this, as you know, is, is anthropopathy, right? The idea you, you attribute or the text attributes to God certain human emotions, as it were. Uh, God can be happy. God can be sad. God can, um, can uh, be angry. Heschel in his great book, on the prophets, which is really easy. I still think it's the best psychological understanding of the prophets, um, uh, points out that God's anger is not like our anger, right? I mean, I'll get angry if I'm, uh, you know, at a stoplight, the third car back and, uh, and the stoplight turns to green and the guy in front of me hasn't moved in 1.2 seconds, right? So, I mean, we, we get angry over silly things or get upset over silly things, right? God's anger is always justified, uh, as are any of the other emotions that God presents, because um, it's uh, you know God uh, it, it's 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 how the the Bible can um, can try and express the relationship. So, however, God's anger can is something which is only temporary, and it only relates to a specific instance or a specific set of instances. And uh, it can be, uh, as you point out, as you mentioned, it can be ameliorated um, for, with, uh, with good behavior. Uh, and that's one of the issues that occurs uh, in the question of redemption. Right? Does redemption occur because the people uh, must first repent and then the redemption occurs, or does the punishment wipe out the problem? And there are different views. Yeah, and I think this this again, um, you know, it's one of those things where I think all of us, when we flip through, when I flip back through the book, say yes, we know these things, but uh, even the idea of return, that there's a hope of return, that there's redemption, and, and this actually entails hope, um, and it really made me stop and question: What is the great hope uh, of a person outside of Israel? Um, who doesn't have access to this kind of a God. Uh, and it's tricky to really define anything that we would recognize as genuine hope today. Yeah, that was, and that's, again, that's, I also tried to bring in ancient Eurasian texts that, uh, that relate to that. You have, uh, from the Sumerians all the way through the Babylonians, uh, the Neo Babylonians, but it's, uh, you're right. And that is one of the, again, a great, um, contribution that you have in the Jewish Bible, the idea that um, the people know that the relationship is never going to be severed and that uh, anything, any uh, untoward uh, um, historical situation in which they find themselves is something that's uh, going to end and you're going to be able to have a positive life afterwards. Maybe not you, but and maybe not your children, but maybe your grandchildren. That's one of the the from the great prophecy by Jeremiah in chapter twenty nine. He talks about um, the idea of uh, of actually of looking for delayed gratification in that sense. Um, and Gener- found, generationally delayed yeah, gratification. Yes, yeah. right. But it's a much more mature perspective than than the idea of uh, wanting immediate gratification. Because when you don't get it, then what do you do? <laughs> uh, you build houses, have children, right? right. That's what Jeremiah right. says. Yes, dig in right. and pray for the welfare of the city. That's, yeah, and pray actually it means. I mean, the word there in Hebrew actually means seek, and it really implies for more than it implies more than pray. It really yeah. means that you work for it, and that really becomes. As it were, a constitution for Jews living in exile. Uh, how that you're supposed to, and, and, and therefore you, you have, um, there's a statement, for example, in the Talmud that says, um, the poor of your city come before the poor of another city. And it doesn't say the poor of your Jewish city, right? It's the poor of your city wherever you are, right? Mm-hmm. 
That's, that city is poor is someone you have to take care of um, before you take care of the poor of uh, somewhere, some more distant land. Uh, it's, a, it's a significant ethical step. Okay, I, I want to keep an eye on our time here. I have a few more questions for you. Um, sure. I do want to highlight for readers, um, uh, when, when you buy the book, if nothing else, read the last three pages. Um, you have a very concisely stated summary in the last three pages um, of all the ethical innovations that you've developed so far uh, and contrasted with the ancient Near Eastern literature. There's there's many there. I think you might have even said there's over 30. Um I do want to ask you this, though. This is a common question that we have, that students have, and I have myself, is, is it fair to say that aspects of these ethical innovations can be found in other literature and other civilizations, other people outside of the Hebrews, um, and that maybe this is a special configuration or orientation of these, or maybe I could put it this way, um, are Hebrew ethics, as they're given to us in the Tanakh, are they unique, or are they just uniquely orchestrated or oriented? Um, well, I mean, I, first let me make a statement about the, uh, about the ancient Near East. Um, and that is that I am not saying that these people were per se unethical to, or even generally unethical. Um, you have, I mean, I was very impressed in my research to realize that you have like a 2000 year old tradition, um, in Egypt. Uh, where you have text after text which says that uh, um, that one is supposed to feed the hungry, give uh, drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, um, and uh, I mean, you, and as you pointed out, you have uh, you have uh, legal texts, uh, or you know, such as Hammurabi's code, where in the intro, in the up, uh, prologue and the epilogue, you have statements that. Uh, Hammurabi is supposed to take care of the weak and prevent the uh, strong from uh, uh, from ruling, from dominating the weak, etc. So you have these these ethical ideas which exist elsewhere. However, you don't have anything like this significant, like the the way that you, the ethics is applied in a legal uh, format in. Um, in Israel, and the way it is, um, the significance of it. What do I mean? You have the whole idea here is that you don't just have a God who is supernatural, a God who is omnipotent, who created the universe. That God is also perceived to be good and the source of good. And I mean good in the ethical sense. Uh, so, therefore, uh, when God gives the people laws and God makes a uh, covenant, a, a treaty with the people on Mount Sinai uh, according to the text in which um, that uh, these laws, the laws of the people are the stipulations of the covenant and that the people be will be as a people either rewarded or punished in terms of their destiny as a people depending upon whether or not they obey uh, the, these laws, whether they, uh, they fulfill these stipulations. You have, a therefore, a perception of law which is totally different than that which exists in any other society, including today. Because if a person disobeyed the law in ancient Israel, then not only was that person, he or she, liable to, to punishment, but that she could uh, affect the destiny of the entire people. So you have the sense of mutual responsibility of, and the responsibility of this, of the society for the individual and the individuals in the society. It's, these are revolutionary ideas. So what's going on, um, in the, uh, Jewish Bible is a total, uh, revolution in ethical thought. And it's it's really unique. Well, that looks like a great place to turn now to our uh, favorite question that everybody gets asked. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do a lightning round on you as okay. was done to me when I was interviewed on here. Uh, but there is one question uh, that we ask all of our guests, and it kind of helps us uh, think uh, alongside with you and kind of hear where you're at is, 
What idea in biblical scholarship do you think should just die a quick death? <laughs> well, uh, I guess the easiest— It could easy- be a school of thought or anything. Yeah, I guess the easiest response for me about that would be would be actually uh, from the conclusions uh, uh, in, in my book, and uh, that is that um, uh, one idea is that um, the— uh, that they would divide first temple religion as uh, Israelite from uh, the uh, exilic and second temple uh, literature, which belongs to ancient Judaism. Okay, so that, that the, the whole idea, actually, that that very idea is uh, derives from uh, from Wellhausen, who was uh, a blatant anti-Semite, um, and he wanted to uh, uh, he he was, but he he attributed the prophecy to First Temple time. So, whereas he thought ancient Judaism was legalistic, uh, and uh, therefore uh, he was dividing away uh, Judaism, which he saw as something which was uh, um, limiting and as degrading in a sense, uh, as opposed to something which was at the real. Um, so that 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 idea should really be dropped. So it's, it's it's time. And the second idea is that. Uh, the Jewish Bible has nothing to say uh, beyond uh, being uh, simply part and parcel of ancient and recent literature. Uh, and, this, and this idea that it does not represent the major difference uh, from that literature, it does. Uh, and it's past time to recognize it. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, for staying up so late at night uh, in order to do this interview. Uh, again, I'm talking uh, today with Dr. Jerry Unterman and his new book, Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics, which is published with the Jewish Publication Society and the University of Nebraska Press. Links uh, and more information will be posted at the OnScript website. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you, Drew. And really, it's uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be on this program. Before I go, I want to thank Sabrina, who took a microphone and a recorder down onto the streets of New York City and asked some sincerely perplexed people about the relationship between the Hebrew Bible and modern American culture. Also, I'd like to thank Matt Lynch and Matt Bates for asking me to join in this wonderful work they do called OnScript. It is truly an honor. You've been listening to OnScript, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Thank you.